are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come, when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. I'm going to move this mic out of the way because it's like a press conference. Um, sorry, Cody, if that's in your way. I'll move it again. Um, thank you, Cherie, for leading us. I, uh, I'm sure many of y'all um, can uh, understand uh, the heavy hearts that, that I, heavy heart that I have had this last week as I've kind of watched all the uh, events unfold in Ukraine and. Um, it can sometimes be overwhelming to think about uh, just the magnitude of, of evil and suffering in the world. It can sometimes feel a little hopeless as well, and, and um, you feel like you're so small, there's really not a lot you can do. And I just, I just from the outset, this has a little to do with the sermon, but just from the outset, I just want to remind us of, of really just two things. Um, one is I want to remind us that there is room for lament and sadness and grief, uh, sometimes for extended periods of time, over the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in our own lives. Um, I think too often we're quick to brush over things with a trite truism or a cheap smile, um, pretend that everything's all right when things are not all right. And so your lament is welcome here. Your sadness is welcome here. Your sadness is welcome before the Lord. Read the Psalms. The psalmists have no issue being sad and lamenting the state of things. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I want to remind you of is in light of that lament, I want us to be reminded that we have a God who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness, Isaiah 40 tells us, in that Good rulers in this world and bad rulers in this world will one day vacate their thrones. We have a king who will never vacate his throne. And we worship him. We seek a kingdom, we advance a kingdom that is not of this world, but one that we seek to forge ahead by way of the peace of the gospel 
And so we have hope. And again, that's not to discount lament, but to be reminded that we do have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we want to continue to pray for the people of Ukraine I don't, and the people that may be affected at, of this as well. People, we also want to pray for the people of Russia um, who are affected as well by their rulers who are making these decisions uh, without their involvement. Um, so let's continue to pray for them that the kingdom of God would advance ultimately. All right. Well, if you weren't with us uh, last week, uh, we began a new sermon series called Signs Speak. And uh, if you weren't around, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon, series, or sermon from last week, the beginning of the series. What we're going to look at over the next seven weeks, the signs, seven signs in the Gospel of John, the eighth week being Palm Sunday, the ninth week being Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Last week, we looked at uh, where Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, Galilee. And by way of quick review, again, I'm not going to go into all of last week, signs in the Gospel of John are intended to teach us about the characteristics of Christ and to compel belief. So teach us about who God is and then cause us to believe by the Holy Spirit. And today, as we just read, we're taking a look at another sign, the second sign in the Gospel of John, the healing of the official son. I am the least creative when it comes to sermon titles, so the sermon is healing the sick son. Um, just to let you know where we're going. Um, but before we jump into that, I'd love for us to pray again, just that God would open up our eyes and, and prepare our hearts to hear from his word. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit works to open up our eyes to see, to open up our ears to hear, to help our hearts to understand and accept and believe the work of Christ on our behalf. So I pray that today, I pray that you compel us to believe as we look at this sign in the Gospel of John. Change us, O God. Teach us, O God. May we leave today in awe of your glory and wonder of who you are. And may that transform us into the people you would have us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A pastor, J.C. Ryle, was a pastor in the 1800s. <clears throat> he said, health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to go. <clears throat> health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if, it's a big if, if it leads us <clears throat> to God. That's true. That's a true statement. None of us ever plan on getting sick. None of us ever plan on contracting some kind of disease or illness. None of us hope that we get sick. But I would venture to say that none of us appreciates health more than when we are sick. None of us appreciates those things by God's common grace that he gives us when we don't have them, when they're taken away. But God doesn't waste illness. God doesn't waste disease. But he takes even the worst days that we physically live, and he redeems them by his grace in Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see this morning, God drives a man to Jesus who may never have approached Jesus if his son had not been sick. So God takes the worst, and he turns it into the best. So let's turn to our text. Let's begin to unpack what the story of this sign teaches us this morning. So Jesus and his 12 disciples, 12, five at this point still, as we talked about last week, they had kind of an interesting uh, few weeks since water had been turned into wine. Right after Jesus turns water into wine, in the end of John chapter two, he heads into the temple 
at Jerusalem during Passover. He starts to flip tables over and drive people out. Didn't make him the most popular person among the religious leaders in Jerusalem or the money changers in Jerusalem. In John 3, he's visited by one of these religious leaders named Nicodemus. Comes to him at night. Nicodemus is intrigued by who Jesus is, and he has a conversation with Christ about being born again, what that means. He can't come to the conclusion at the end of that conversation that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't get there yet. We think he gets there eventually, but he doesn't get there yet. And in John 4, we meet a Samaritan woman, a scandalous woman in a scandalous region called Samaria, who does get it. She does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. She becomes the first missionary. She goes back into her village. Says, hey, come and meet this man who told me everything I ever did. So this religious leader, who should know better, doesn't get it. And this Samaritan woman, who is scorned by every person in this scandalous village, does get it. And now Jesus is back in Cana at Galilee, the location of the wedding feast where we saw the first sign last week. And he's approached by this royal official in a desperate situation. And, and I think throughout our narrative, if I had to just break it up, I'm going to break it up into three chapters. And we don't have notes today. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a failure. It's been a busy week at the Baker household. We can talk about that later. But they did not get to, uh, they didn't get to make So I'm going to break it up as best I can for you this morning. Verbally, if you're a note taker, you're adults, most of you here, you can take notes, you're great. Um, so three chapters, three chapters, all right? First chapter, I'm going to break it down and call this a desperate need, all right? A desperate need. So verse 46, let's read this again. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And then verse 49 states it even more desperately, this man's son is about to die. And he comes to Jesus and he needs assistance immediately. Desperation is a common theme here. We talked about it last week the, in the changing of water to wine, where in the first miracle, the first sign, Mary, uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus in a desperate situation. The, the wine is gone and shame and reproach are about to fall upon this bridegroom and his family because the wine has run out. And here, a desperate father approaches Jesus, interceding for the life of his son who's about to die. Wine is one thing. Life and death is quite another. The situation has gotten even more serious than even in John chapter 2. And this man approaching Jesus is a royal official, probably from the court of Herod Antipas, the ruler of that time. And then verse 47 says, when this man, this official, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this guy hears that Jesus has come back to the region, and all likelihood that he probably heard what Jesus had done at the wedding in Cana, turning water to wine, and he seeks an audience with this miracle worker. Now the ESV, which we just read from, and what I teach from, I love it. I love the translation, the ESV, English Standard Version. But I don't think it captures really the desperation of the situation in the words it uses in verse 47, where this official asked Jesus. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where your son or daughter are sick, you're doing a lot more than just asking if there's nothing else there. You're begging. 
You're imploring. The NIV says he begged Jesus to come down and do something. This is a, a loving father watching his son inch closer and closer to death. And his last hope here is that Jesus could do something. For the parents in the room, if you're a parent in this room, really anyone in this room that's ever watched anybody slowly fade away or die, if you're a parent in this room and you've seen maybe your child come close to death, or you've walked through or currently walking through uh, illness or severe sickness with one of your kids, there is nothing that you would not do to get aid to your kid. Nothing. And in those moments where there truly is nothing left to do, you've exhausted every option. You, they, the, these situations, they test the character of who you are. They put the rubber to the road, so to speak. And you are really tested in the sense of, do I really believe what I say I believe in this situation about who God is, his ability to do what I ask him to do? So this father begs Jesus to come to his home to heal his son, but Jesus then responds in a weird way, verse 48, which he responded in a weird way last time in last week's sermon as well. He said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now the you here in verse 48 is plural. So he's not just talking to this official standing in front of him. There's a good chance he's directing this statement to all of those Galileans around Jesus at that time hoping that he will perform for them, you know, do a dance, perform for them, a sign or a miracle. And this is kind of what we hit on last week when we talked about this complex relationship between signs of belief in the Gospel of John. Oftentimes in the Gospel of John, people possess this superficial belief in Jesus, only wanting their immediate needs met in that situation. And then once their needs are met, as soon as Jesus says something hard or asks him, them to follow a little closer, they bail. They've gotten what they wanted, and they're gone. Or, on the other hand, there are many people that see the signs of Jesus and just choose not to believe. So you have superficial belief on one hand, and then you have no belief on the other hand. We're not sure, uh, this guy standing in front of Jesus is not sure who this miracle worker is, but he knows he needs his son healed. He knows that Jesus has done one miracle, and he's seeking for Jesus to do another miracle. It often appears in the Gospel of John when uh, people approach Jesus, they have this kind, of, this kind of bartering mentality. Hey, Jesus, if you'll do this, then I will do this, fill in the blank. Or Jesus, if you only help me with this, then I will follow you. And if we're being honest with ourselves, I think that is true for us in some situations as well. If things are going well, if our families are healthy and loving each other, our kids aren't fighting all the time, if we're succeeding in our careers or in school, if our finances are secure, and in order, if Jesus was working out all these things for me, my belief, my faith in him is strong, right? But then when things start to fall apart, when successes begin to fade, when relationships are strained, when illness or disease or sickness come in and we're you know, expecting, how often does our faith begin to shake and to waver because it's rooted in the Lord making our lives easy rather than in us following him when it gets hard? 
So bartering approach to God, Lord, if you just work these things out for me, then I will follow you. We may not explicitly say that, but we implicitly believe that when these things happen. This man persists in his request in verse 49. Jesus rebukes him in 48. Verse 49, he's like, I need you to come right now. Go, my son. And Jesus says in verse 50, he says, go. Your son will live. And then the text says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So if chapter one is a desperate need, chapter two is faith in Christ's word. Faith in Christ's word. This official challenged by the rebuke of Jesus, he begins to demonstrate true faith. He hears the word of Christ, the word of Christ. He doesn't see a sign. He hears the word of Christ. Jesus simply tells him his son will get well. And without physically seeing a sign to confirm that his son actually is well, he trusts the word of Jesus and heads back home. He demonstrates, unlike the majority of Galileans in this hearing, under the rebuke of Christ, this guy demonstrates that he's not only interested in signs and wonders, but he believes at that moment the word of Christ. And verse 50 is, is kind of like it's kind of like the crux of the whole text. Everything kind of revolves around verse 50. This passage centers on the, the power and the effectiveness of the word of the Lord in these verses. And I want us to look at three things, three things that we learn about Christ's word, about the word of the Lord from this text. And the first one is this, that Christ's word is authoritative. Christ's word is authoritative. We talked about this a little last week. We saw that Christ is authoritative over uh, inanimate, created objects like water. He can take the chemical makeup of water, H2O, I think that's right, and move it into the chemical makeup of wine. I don't know what that is. Um, whatever that is, he's authoritative to do that. But this week, we see how Jesus is authoritative over disease and illness, that Jesus simply speaks a word. And to quote one of the commentaries I read, the guy said, the cure, the shooting, the cure shooting quicker than lightning from Cana to Capernaum was felt by this dying man. It's interesting, this man wants Jesus to physically come to his house to heal his son, which a journey from Canaan to Capernaum is about 20 miles, probably a two-day trip for Jesus. But Jesus speaks a word, and that word travels way quicker than any feet could go. And all throughout the Bible, the, the scriptures demonstrate to us the authority of the word of God. From the very beginning, when God is making the universe, and he's doing everything he does to make this whole universe and fling galaxies into place. He's doing all this by his word. He speaks and things exist that did not exist before. The Lord would give words to the prophets and to the messengers on his behalf, these words to communicate his desire for his people and how they should live. And the word that's communicated is authoritative, not just in a supernatural you know, miracle-working way, but it's authoritative for us as the church and how we should live. The one who made and sustains the world has the right to speak into our lives and dictate how we should live. Amen. He's our creator. We are created. He has the authority and the right to say that. He sits in the heavens. He does as he pleases. 
he tells us how to live in honor of him. You know, one of the amazing things about the God we worship in Christianity, the true God, is that he has left his authoritative word to us as his people. It's right here in the scriptures. This is the authoritative word of the Lord. And he's also left us with the Holy Spirit to help us see and understand and give us the power to live out his word. You know, the words of the Bible are the very words of the one who created all these things and sustains them every day. And God has given us his word to teach us not only how to live, but to teach us about himself. Now, two familiar verses for us, uh, if you've been uh, probably around Christianity, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, speak about the word of the Lord. And they say, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible has the authority to dictate and determine how we should live righteously in this world for the glory of our Lord. And it shouldn't be any surprise to us, because there is so much weight on the authority of the Scriptures, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the Word of God is under attack and has been under attack since the beginning of time. We think back to the very beginning, the garden, Genesis chapter 3. What is the first thing the serpent asked Eve? Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He's beginning to plant these seeds of doubt in the mind of Eve and in the minds of Adam around the word of the Lord. Did God actually say, you shall not, boom, boom, boom. But then, by beginning to question the word of God, what the serpent does in Genesis 3 is he starts to plant those seeds of doubting the character of God. And Eve begins to question, well, maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe the one thing we do need is the tree, knowledge of good and evil. Maybe we do need the wisdom to know good and evil. Maybe God doesn't want us to eat from this tree because we'll be like him. And he doesn't want any rivals. Well, the same is true today. Right? Our enemy, the ancient serpent, still tries to sow seeds of doubt into our hearts around the word of the Lord. And those seeds, they sometimes blossom and bloom into questioning the very character of the God who gave us his word. You know, I wish we had time. Uh, I wish we had time to camp out here longer. I would love to do, at some point, a sermon series through Genesis. I think that, especially even the first three chapters of Genesis, really set the building blocks for the rest of the Bible. There's so many themes to unpack. But I would venture to say that every single person in this room, myself included, have had doubts around who the Lord is or doubts around the Word of God, the Bible itself. Is it true? Is it sufficient? Is it authoritative? Maybe we wrestle with seeing parts of the Bible as too restrictive or too outdated or preventing us from being happy or fulfilled, that we need to live our lives how we think they should be lived, not how the Bible tells us to live our lives. But we always need to be reminded, church, we always need to be reminded that the Word of God and the character of God, they can't be separated. God's word is actually a manifestation of his character. Even in the commands of the Lord, they're not primarily given to us to teach us how to live, although that is a reason, obviously, but it's given to us to teach us about who God is. What does this command teach me about the heart of God, about his character, about his makeup? 
So when we come to the Bible, we want to know, first and foremost, who is God? What is he like? What is his hope for me in Jesus Christ? And then from there, we seek to live our lives under the authority of the word in submission to it. Not over it as judge, but under it in submission. The word of Christ possesses authority over disease and illness, authority over our lives. That's the first thing about the word of the Lord we know from these texts first, especially verse 50. Second thing, his word is also the source of life. It's also the source of life. Jesus tells this official, go, your son will live. Jesus possesses the power to give life. We're going to see this played out even greater in some miracles to come, particularly the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But suffice to say here, Jesus is the author and arbiter of physical life, but also spiritual life. This guy believes he is given new life spiritually. I mean, the Gospel of John alone, we want to talk about life. The Gospel of John alone, John 1, 4, in Jesus is life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 21, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 43 times in the gospel of John, Jesus and life go hand in hand. Life is associated with Jesus. And after Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people in John chapter 6, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, he says a few hard things right, to the people. And you have your belly still. Let me tell you what this miracle actually means. Uh, come eat my flesh and drink my blood and follow after me. It's, it's just weird. And a bunch of people leave. Right? They leave. They abandon. They've gotten what they want. They're gone. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, are you guys leaving too? Do you remember Peter's response in John 6, 68? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words eternal life. So when we think about abandoning the God of the Bible over hard sayings, over things that may not sit well with our cultural demands around us in this world, things that may cause us to be called certain things or looked at certain ways. When we think about abandoning those things, let's think about what Peter says. Where else are we going to go? What's the alternative? Where else can we find life outside of Jesus Christ? He has the power to grant life physically, yes, but he also has the power to grant life spiritually. And then third, the word of Christ it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. The man believes the word of Jesus. As we said before, no sign has been done yet. He believes the word of the Lord. He goes back home to trust that what Jesus said was true, that it would come to pass. He doesn't continue to beg and plead for Jesus to physically come to his house. He makes his petition. He hears the word of Christ. He believes and he leaves. Because the word of God and the character of God are so intertwined and connected, which we talked about already, we can be confident that God cannot ever change or go against his word 
for in doing so, he is going against himself. And he can never do that. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, nor will his word change. If his word changed for the better, that means God himself could change for the better, which means he wasn't perfectly good to begin with. If he can change for the worse, that means we can wake up tomorrow morning and know what kind of, what kind of God are we getting today? God's word does not change, just as God does not change, for his word and his character are together. In, uh, in early 2020, just to kind of give you a story to kind of bring all this together. In early 2020, uh, Christine and I, my wife, Christine, we uh, found ourselves in a, <clears throat> a really dire situation with our middle daughter, Ellie. When Ellie was born at the beginning of the pandemic in April 2020, she's 22 months now, and um, we initially planned to do a hospital delivery, but as the pandemic was shutting things down, we started to see some trends, of, especially in the Northeast, New York City, of, of spouses not being allowed to come into delivery rooms and things like that. This is our first biological kid we were going to have. We wanted to be there. I wanted to be present with my wife. And so we opted to do a home birth, <clears throat> which was great, by the way. In spite of what I'm about to tell you, this was great. It was a great experience. We did it again, all right? Uh, we did it again. So Christine goes into labor the night of April 21st. Um, the midwife, midwife's assistant, doula, they all show up on time, which, praise the Lord, that was a huge fear of mine. I'm like, I'm going to live with this. Um, they showed up, and Ellie's born. And she's placed on Christine's chest at her house, and joy fills up the room, but... It didn't take very long to realize that, that things are not going like they should be going. Um, Ellie's on Christine's chest. She's not crying. She's not breathing well, if at all. She's starting to turn blue. Her heart rate's dropping pretty significantly. All this feels like it took an eternity. I'm sure it was only a few seconds, but yeah, it just felt like it was forever. So they pull her off Christine's chest, and, and they lay her down on the bed, and they start to administer an oxygen tank, hand pump to my Newborn daughter. She's still not responding. And, and I vividly remember the midwife's assistant asking the midwife, do I need to make the call? The call being to a, a, an ambulance to come and get our daughter and save her life. She's, she's a baby. And I'm standing there, and I'm off to the corner, and it's one of the most helpless situations I've ever found myself in. There's literally nothing I can do. I don't have the skills necessary to save my daughter's life. To be honest, even if I did have the skills, I don't know if I'd have the presence of mind in that moment to do what I needed to do to save her life. I'm literally watching my newborn baby girl who came into the world minutes ago start to just fade away. I'm watching, I'm watching it happen. To my right, so we're in my room, I'm right here, to my right, about five or six steps away is our doula. And so crazy, just the sovereignty of the Lord. This doula was not supposed to be there. Um, we actually had another doula scheduled, and she was in Florida. We were two weeks early. I don't blame her. She was in Florida, and this doula, I met her that night. I didn't know anything about her. And she's whispering something over and over again, just whispering something. And I'm just like, what is she, what is she saying? And she was whispering, Jesus, breathe life. Jesus, breathe life. Jesus, breathe life. And... The guy who has the seminary degree, who's been doing six years, seven years worth of full-time ministry and for, had forgotten 
to go to Christ in that moment, when I'm helpless, I'm being reminded by this lady that there's only one place for me to go right now, and it's to Jesus. In my mind, I'm in that moment, I'm thinking, like, I gotta go to Christ, I gotta bring this to Christ, I gotta pray, pray for my daughter. She's, she's literally dying right before me. So I'm thinking about Psalm 46.1, that God is a, a, re a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. I'm like, this is a time of trouble right now. And this midwife, this, so, this midwife suddenly stops what she's doing. She's whispering. I begin praying. This midwife stops. She looks at Ellie. She takes two of her fingers like this, and she just starts to give CPR to my daughter on her chest. By God's grace, Ellie starts to respond. She starts to come to. She starts to breathe. She starts to cry. She starts to do everything that she should do. Praise the Lord. And a couple of days later, this midwife came over to the house for a follow-up, kind of a check-in. How you doing? And our midwife is not a believer. She's not a Christian. As we're talking, she, we asked her, what, how dire was the situation? And what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? And she said it was real belief. She said in the 365 births she's done, she's never once had to give CPR to a, to a baby. It's never happened before. But she said this. She said, even though I administered CPR to Ellie, the way I did it is not how they trained me to do it. She said, but in that moment, it felt like something grabbed a hold of my hands and said, do it this way. And Christine and I kind of looked at each other, sitting and we were like, let me, let me tell you about that. And we're able to share the gospel with it. So when I read a story like John chapter 4 about this man who can do nothing for his son, he's watching his son inch by inch slip closer to death. I feel like I felt like him. Even the methods the medical professionals knew that those methods weren't even enough. They had to, a supernatural hand had to step in and say, do it this way. And I was reminded by that doula standing next to me a few steps away that, that Christ had the power and the authority to save my daughter. I was reminded that Jesus has the power to physically bring life to my daughter. But even if he had chosen not to heal her, even if Christ had chosen not to intervene that April morning and save my daughter minutes after she'd entered into this world, if that had not happened, in the midst of the deepest, most acute possible pain in my heart that I could ever experience, that Christine would ever experience, we could know over time, not April 23rd, but over time by God's grace that his word is still trustworthy. That he is still trustworthy that his heart is still good, that even though I walked, we could have walked through the shadow of the valley of death, that our good shepherd was gently walking through it with us. He was near us, that he was ministering to and comforting us through the spirit, and one day he would wipe away, he would have wiped away the tears we shed for Ellie when we saw him face to face. He could have done that, and he would have done that, because he's trustworthy. His word is trustworthy and true. So we have a desperate need. We have faith in Christ's word. And in chapter 3, I'm going to sum it up here. We have the impact of belief. The impact of belief. Look at verse 51. As this official was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So he asked him the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. I love this text in so many ways. And one of the ways I love it so much is that you start, you see kind of the progression of faith throughout. That initially this guy comes to Jesus and at best he has superficial faith. At worst, he has no faith at all. He's rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus tells him that his son will live. And for some reason, I mean, this guy believes the word of the Lord. I don't know if it was the authoritative mean demeanor of Christ. I don't know if it was uh, the authority of his words in itself. Well, obviously, it was the Holy Spirit bringing this guy to initial faith in Jesus. But this official believes and he heads on his way. He believes the word of Christ before any sign has been done. His father realizes on his way home that his son has been healed. The sign confirming the faith, not the sign being the groundwork of the faith. Two different things. And you see here at the end that this imperfect seed of faith that started as imperfect blossoms and flourishes to belief at the end of the text that then impacts his entire household. The entire household trusts in Christ. It's this progression of faith. And I love it because I think it's a case study in how faith develops in the life of a believer. How many of us get so discouraged when we, when we hear men and women who achieve great things for the Lord, right? That, that withstand huge trials and huge temptations for the glory of the Lord. And we're like, man, I wish I could have faith like that. I wish I could have faith like that man or that woman. But the Spirit develops our faith over time. We don't arrive there on day one. It's a part of the sanctification process. It grows, it's strengthened. The more we evidence the Lord's work in the world, the more our faith is strengthened, right? The more the foundation grows stronger. And then others are impacted by the gospel themselves through us. So God will use every circumstance in our life to strengthen our faith, the good and the bad. He doesn't waste anything. Nothing that happens in your life is arbitrary. It's not by accident. God sovereignly brings it about in your life for his glory and for your good. So we see this development of faith. We also see, we also see the universal offer of the gospel. And what I want to do is I want to take a step back for just a second. We'll zoom out, 30,000 foot view, and just kind of see where this text rests in the context of what's going on in the gospel of John. We were preaching verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through. We hit on this. We're not. But if we were to see the flow of the gospel of John to this point, it would look something like this. In John 3, Jesus offers the gospel of grace to a significant religious leader in Israel. The beginning of John 4, the same gospel of grace is extended to a Samaritan woman living in an outcast society. In our text for this morning, the gospel of grace comes to a Roman official, a man representing power in society, a, a man who probably wasn't very well liked by the Jewish people in Israel. And then as we're going to see next week, the gospel of grace is extended to a man who lived with a disability for 38 years. The lowest rung of society. No affluence at all. And what John is doing here is he's laying out in his structure of the gospel that to us as the readers, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has no boundaries. That it isn't reserved for the elite, and at the same time it's not reserved for the outcast. That it transcends cultural and geographical lines that could not have been crossed otherwise. 
The gospel brings together people from all walks of societies, from all different backgrounds, socioeconomic classes. It brings together people in Ukraine and people in Russia. And it reminds them, excuse me, it reminds them that in Christ, we have been redeemed. And in Christ, we are now a new people. This new age, we talked about last week, this new age that Jesus has inaugurated, that he has transformed us into, this thing, this age that is coming to usher in the end of all things, the last days. This new age where the new people have been formed by God's grace constitute a new society. A society that's deeper than physical descent, a society that uh, transcends status and culture. This society is has shares the common story that we've been redeemed and saved in Jesus Christ. The kingdom is not made up of those people who, from a surface standpoint, if you and I were judging, we would say they don't get in. Praise the Lord, right? Society is made up of all tribes and tongues and languages and peoples. Now united under the banner saved by Jesus Christ. But we live like that, Emmanuel. May we extend the gospel to all people that we see, all people that we meet. May we not be restrictive in our gospel grace towards others. For our God is not restrictive in his gospel grace towards us. God's word has the power to bring new life to everyone it touches. It has the trustworthiness to be believed. Because our God is one to be believed and trusted. To God be the glory even in the darkest of times. In the best of times. Let me pray together. Father, the gospel is good news to all people, not just for a certain few. We thank you, Father, that the gospel has reached the uttermost parts of the earth, for none of us in this room will be sitting here if that not. We thank you, Lord, for your word, a word that is full of power, a word that is full of authority, a word that is full of life. Your word that is trustworthy because all of those things are wrapped up in you. You are powerful. You're authoritative. You bring life. You are trustworthy. And we praise you for that. Father, I pray that you grow our faith, grow our belief, regardless of if we see signs or not, grow our belief that is not circumstantial. It's not shallow, but has deep, deep roots. <coughs> Father, we love you. We pray, Lord, change us by the grace that is found in your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach us what it means to be a new people, to love each other, and give up ourselves for the good of each other. For your glory, O oh God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.